Today's reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 1 through 4 and 19 through 21. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Great to see all of you. My name's Eric. I'm the pastor here at Trinity. And as you just heard, so he read, uh, she read from Matthew 6, and we are right in the middle of our summer series on the Sermon on the Mount. This series on Jesus's most famous sermon is going to take us through really the entirety of the summer. So we are right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount at the beginning of chapter 6. So just to refresh your memory and set the context here, chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount, was all about Jesus correcting distortions of the Bible's teaching concerning everyday ethics. So six times in chapter 5, he said, you have heard it said, but I say to you. You have heard it said, but I say to you. So he was entering into some of the major ways that the Bible had been misinterpreted and misapplied with regard to anger and lust and marriage, retaliation, telling the truth, and loving our neighbors. So that section of of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying, when it comes to flourishing, to living the life that God intended us to live, the blessed life, the flourishing life, it's not about a list of moral do's and don'ts for you to check, but it's about deeply embodying God's truth and God's love in our relationships. So that that was chapter 5. But in chapter 6, Jesus is turning the corner. He's moving from our ethical lives, you could say our outward lives, into our inner reality, to our spirituality, you could call it. One author says, chapter 5, it dealt with the danger of evil works. Chapter 6 now warns of the danger of good works the danger of good works. It deals with a hypocritical spiritual life on the one hand and the rewards of a genuine spiritual life on the other hand. What I find fascinating as I was thinking about this and studying this week about Jesus all over again and about the Sermon on the Mount in particular is how Jesus is this manifesto that he's given to us for human flourishing, that it just blows all of our categories and challenges us no matter whether we've been Christians for a long time, whether we're exploring, whether we still have a lot of questions about Christianity. In chapter 5, Jesus seems, 
He seems to be siding with the conservatives or the moralists because he says, warning, there is a danger of downplaying, of watering down, and of changing the Bible's ethical teaching to fit our own tastes or to fit the culture. And so there's some of us who might say the biggest danger in society, the biggest danger to human flourishing is when we water down our moral lives and our ethics. And Jesus seems to agree with that. But then in chapter 6, Jesus seems not to side with the conservatives or the moralists, but with the irreligious and the progressives in warning of the danger of living this inauthentic life, of living a fake life. And some would say the biggest danger in society, the biggest roadblock for us to find human flourishing, the way we are intended to live, is any restraint that's put on our freedom or our self-expression. Jesus says they're both onto something. These are both equally dangerous when it comes to our flourishing, to finding the life we are meant to live, but neither have the whole picture. What Jesus is after is this aligning, this alignment of our authentic self with God's heart and with God's kingdom so we love what He loves. So this section in chapter 6, it's 1 through 18, this one major section. Jesus is going to cover three core spiritual practices, the good works of, of his day. In, in the, uh, the writings of Judaism of this day, these were called the pillars of Judaism. Giving, which we just heard read. He'll move on to praying, and then he'll talk about fasting. Giving, praying, fasting. Those were the pillars of Judaism. And so, so today we're starting really like a three-week mini-series within the larger series, like one of those Russian dolls. This is the little doll inside of the main series. This is a series on rewarding spirituality. How that fits into the big picture is that we'll find in order for us to flourish as people, in order to help other people flourish around us, we need to learn the secret of rewarding spirituality. Two key words in this section, secret and reward. And so the theme is that people who learn that secret of rewarding spirituality, these are the people who truly flourish. These are the people who can draw others closer to God to find the flourishing life. And with all this, Jesus says there is a major warning that our spiritual practices can either lead us deeper into flourishing or they can rob us. They can drain us. They can leave us empty. There is a danger of good works. So this morning, we're going to start with giving. What is the secret to experiencing rewarding giving? We're going to look at three things. First, the wrong reason to give. Secondly, the right reasons to give. And thirdly, we'll talk about the reward of giving. So if you're following along and taking notes, you'll see that for you in the worship folder. 6, chapter 1, verse 1. If you look at verse 1 with me again, that's really the thesis statement, the introduction for these next 18 verses. There Jesus says, beware. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. So here in this transition, Jesus begins the section with this warning. He says, beware. Be careful. The, the tense of this verb is a present ongoing tense. And so the, the sense that Jesus is communicating here is have constant vigilance in your life over what I'm about to tell you. 
And so the implication here is that it is a constant temptation for all of us to do certain things to get the notice of other people, to get the praise and the approval of other people in our lives. And this temptation is especially strong when it comes to our spirituality, when it comes to religion. It's like it's supercharged. Jesus shows how this can infect every part of our spiritual lives. He's going to apply it, like I said, to giving, to prayer, to fasting. I think the list could go on to our Bible reading, to our serving. It's like a disease or infection of the soul that affects everything. And like any disease, the first step in treating it and healing it is first it has to be diagnosed. And so in order for us to help us see how this temptation works in our own lives, Jesus uses a certain set of vocabulary. He's using this this image. He's painting a picture, and it's the vocabulary of the stage or of the theater. We could translate verse 1, be constantly on guard that you do not do your righteousness in front of other people in order to be theater to them. The Greek there is theothenai. You see the connection to the word theater. Beware, Jesus says, of theatrical righteousness, doing religious and spiritual things to put on a show, to be pretending, to be performing. But then in verse 2, when Jesus is talking about how this applies to our giving, he says, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Now, commentators and scholars ask the question, were there actual people who went around with trumpets or they had a little posse with them that would blow a trumpet when they were giving? And most likely, no, that wasn't happening. But Jesus is painting a picture. It's hyperbole. And it's meant to be kind of humorous. When you're imagining this person in your mind who's giving into an offering box like the one that we have at our door and there's an announcement, my gift! It has come. Here it goes into the plate. And he's, Jesus is calling to mind that picture and saying, how ridiculous is that? How theatrical a picture. And within verse 2, there's even another stage term. It's the word hypocrite. It's the word that was used at the time for an actor. That's the literal way that it was used for a stage actor. It's literally a mask wearer. We use this term in our culture often to describe a person who says one thing and does another, but Jesus is using it even deeper than that. He's saying a hypocrite is someone whose outer actions don't line up with their inner reality and their motivations. A hypocrite is someone for whom life is a performance and a stage. So here's a first diagnostic test to run on ourselves. I'll call it the stage test. Uh, Many of you have been on stage, some type of stage for some reason or another in your life, a performance or a play. I remember the first time that I was ever on a stage was in kindergarten, and it was our kindergarten play. So my part was to be the narrator, and I would stand just like this on a podium and read the script, and it was something to do with a wolf, maybe Little Red Riding Hood or something, but what happened right before the play was about to begin is we learned that the wolf got really sick, 
And so I had to play a dual role of wolf and narrator. And I remember it very, very vividly, but after the play was over, what was I thinking? What was the first thing on my mind? And I can even still kind of remember it as a kindergartner. It was, how did I do? Did people like me? Did I mess up at all? Even right now, I'm on a stage of sorts. Anytime you're on stage, anytime you're in front of people, there's a great temptation. How did I do? Did I mess up? Did people like me? I call it playback. Whenever you're, maybe you're giving a presentation at work or you're doing something in front of people and after it's done, you're just playing it all back and critiquing yourself. Oh, that should have done that. I should have done this. I don't think people liked it. How was it good enough? It's the playback. And that's the first diagnostic. How much does that happen in your own heart and in your own life? How much are you playing back and asking, did they like me? Was I good enough? When it comes to this disease of hypocrisy, I don't think the stage test or diagnostic is enough. Because sometimes we, we do wear masks and we know it and we feel it. And other times we do it without even realizing it. And Jesus begins here in this section on rewarding spirituality with what should be the most behind the scenes and subtle part of our spirituality, our giving, how we give to other people. In Judaism of the day, I already mentioned this was one of the big three, the three pillars. It was called, in a broader sense, almsgiving, giving to the needy is how it's translated in the ESV, which we read from. And it could be anything that falls under the heading of doing charity, of giving to the needy, of giving money, of service. And it could even be broader in application whenever we're giving our money, our time, our energy to help others or to meet a need. Our most outwardly selfless actions, like all these, these examples of doing charity, of giving, can actually be done, Jesus says, for the wrong reasons, for the praise of other people. How can we tell this is happening? We have one test, the stage test. I think there's some other signs that we can look for. Signs of hypocrisy happening in our lives or theatrical righteousness. Five signs I want to share. If you're taking notes, you might want to write these down. Number one, we are bitter when we aren't noticed or recognized. Number two, we are envious or jealous when others are noticed or recognized. Number three, we are entitled. We think, for all I do, this is what I get. Number four, we judge others who aren't giving what or how we are. And so we judge. Number five, we lack joy in our giving. All these signs are signs that we're probably giving for the wrong reasons, that it's a performance, that it's a show. Because Jesus says there should be constant vigilance here, I want to pause for a little bit of application. According to Jesus, then, the most unhealthy church would be a theatrical church where everything's a performance where everything is a stage, 
where everyone is wearing masks. The most unhealthy Christian is a theatrical Christian where everything is a performance. Hypocrisy and health cannot coexist. And the further that our outer self is removed from our inner self and our inner realities, the more in danger we are. But the flip side is also true, that the most healthy church and the most healthy Christian is the honest and the real and the vulnerable Christian and church. That the church is safe and a safe place where people can take off their masks and be honest. And Jesus says it's not just about being honest and vulnerable and real for its own sake, but it's about taking off the masks so that we can grow together in these aspects of genuine spirituality, of learning to give, to pray and fast for real. Let me move to my next point. That's the wrong reason to give. What about the right reasons to give? When we see hypocrisy in other, other people, even when we see it in ourselves, it can be so ugly. It can be so insincere that our knee-jerk reaction to hypocrisy might be swinging the pendulum all the way in the other side and saying, if it's going to be fake, if it's not going to be real, then forget all that religious stuff. Forget all these disciplines. Just do what you feel like doing. But notice, that's not what Jesus says. He says, In verse 2 and following, when you give, later on he'll say when you pray or when you fast. He's saying these things aren't just optional disciplines to do when you feel like it, but he has a certain expectation that those who follow me will be engaged in giving and praying and fasting. There are right reasons, there are healthy reasons and good reasons why we shouldn't give up on giving, even if we struggle with hypocrisy. I want to share two major reasons from the text. First, right reason to give. It's a way that we learn selflessness, that meeting the needs of others is important because others matter. In Jesus' time, like we said, this was a big part of the religion of the day, one of the big three. And the reason why this one in particular, almsgiving, was particularly important was because this was the only social welfare system they had for the widows and for the orphans and for the handicapped. There were no government services in place in these days. These gifts were it. And the traditional commandment of the law of the time, Deuteronomy 5 or 15, verse 11, said, There will never be, cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor. And this is another way that we see why giving hypocritically or for ourselves is so wrong. Because giving is not a way that we boost our ego and our image and feel better about ourselves. It's a way that we practically communicate the value and the significance of other people, especially those who are marginalized, whose value and whose worth is questioned by the broader society. 
And when we give for show to prove ourselves, we undercut that. But all our giving of any kind is meant to shape our hearts, is meant to help us see that my needs and me and my stuff is not the center of the universe. The needs of others are important. And so Jesus says this should be a regular part of our spirituality, the giving to meet needs. It teaches us selflessness. Secondly, second right reason to give, it's a major way that we learn self-forgetfulness, where we learn not to need to be noticed. At the end of verse 2, Jesus says, there is actually a reward for giving hypocritically. He says, truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. And the terminology there is commercial terminology, economic terminology. And you could say, you could translate this literally, that their reward is paid in full and they have their receipt. That's all you'll be getting. If you give and serve for the praise of others, you will get it. But that's all you'll get. And it'll never be enough. Mariah Carey, some of you may be fans, she's, what's so funny? I like Mariah, Mariah Carey's awesome, man. Obviously a talented vocalist, though some of you might think that's funny. She shared in an interview once, uh, when when somebody was asking her about, you know, the, the feedback she gets, she said she can hear a thousand praises and get one criticism. And that one criticism will drown out all 1,000 of the praises and the applause. I appreciate Mariah Carey for saying that because I think she's being very honest. She's describing something that goes on in my heart and I think in all of our hearts. That it's never enough. That reward. If we get the reward we're seeking, the praise and the approval of other people, it's never enough. For me in my own life, there was a pastor who was a mentor of mine for a season of my life. And for the first four or five years of knowing this particular pastor mentor, I just so craved his approval. I wanted to spend all the time I could with him. And one day when I was preaching, he was there in in the congregation, and I was a little nervous. Oh, he's there. What's he going to think of me? Uh, And so I preached, and later on that Sunday, he actually called me up, specifically gave me a call. He said, I'm so encouraged by your preaching, and he shared very specific encouragements with me. And so I was just like, oh, wow, he likes me. He thinks I'm good enough. And I was so energized by that. But then I realized the next day some things happened, and all of a sudden I was back in the same place of feeling insecure, of self-doubt, of wrestling. And I was just telling myself, I just had the approval of my man crush, pastor hero. And still, it wasn't enough. If we need to be noticed, even when we are, even by the person's approval that we crave the most, the reward is fleeting and ephemeral. Jesus says, it's like a moth ate it. The rust just takes it away. At Redeemer San Diego, the church where I served previously, we merged with another church and we were moving into their facility and we were doing some remodeling along the outside and the exterior of the building. And we noticed as we were doing this, we were kind of wrapping some wood around some pillars, there was um, this plaque. 
okay? This plaque on a building, and it said, in memory of or in honor of, of such and such a person. And I was just asking, I was curious, I was like, can we just cover that up? You know, just put the wood over that, and who is this person? And there was another pastor who had the history with this other congregation, and he said, no, we can't cover that up, but I have no idea who that person is. But somebody might know, and if we cover it up, they'll get offended. Even our greatest acts of giving and of charity will one day be forgotten. Jesus says, when you give, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That's not literally possible. We can't put a line in between ourselves. He's saying, don't give for an audience, not even the audience of yourself, to congratulate yourself and build your self-esteem. But when you give, when you give anything away, do it for what the old Puritans used to say, an audience of one. There is only one person who is in the audience, and that is God. And giving is a way that we learn to do this. Tim Keller says that humility is not thinking less about ourselves, it's thinking about ourselves less. In his book on self-forgetfulness, he goes on to say, gospel humility is not needing to think about myself. It means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. This is the freedom of self-forgetfulness, the blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness can bring. And giving is one powerful way where we learn the blessed rest of self-forgetfulness. Because when we give rightly, we release our right, our hold on our time, on our money, on our gifts, on our energy. It's not mine anymore. It's not connected to me. One practical point here for us at Trinity, we mention every week when we talk about our offering that we don't give through the passing of a plate or through the offering bag that makes its way through the pews. And the, one of the major reasons why, probably the most important passage as to why we do that, is this passage in Matthew chapter 6. Because not only is it important that your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing, but what about when your neighbor's right hand knows what your left hand put in to the offering basket? We don't want it to be about that kind of pressure and just remove that. So that's why we have our offering basket in the back. There are wrong reasons to give. There are right reasons to give. And Jesus also says there is reward when we give. In verse 4, your father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus is not shy about motivating us with reward when it comes to giving. Sometimes in order to motivate our children, we have four boys, I will mention the word reward to help them press on and to carry out whatever it is that I'm asking them to do. And this can backfire on me because I can use it too often. When I say to them, do your homework, Sometimes they'll come back and say, well, what's my reward? So your reward is turning that paper in and getting a good grade. And they're like, that's not enough. It may be okay for a kindergartner to be motivated with a lollipop for doing their worksheets, but there would be a problem on our hands, on my hands, as a father, if we still needed to motivate with lollipops when they're in high school 
or college? Is it wrong to give for a reward? I think the answer is it depends on the kind of reward you're seeking. C.S. Lewis, in his essay, The Weight of Glory, he talks about the connection between a reward and an action. And there's a quote from him up on the screen. There is the reward, which has no natural connection with the things you do to earn it and is quite foreign to the desires that ought to accompany those things. So, for example... The reward for love is not money, that's kind of a mercenary love, but it's marriage, he says. The reward for hard work is a scholarship, not a silver cup or a medal with your name on it. And then he says, the proper rewards are not simply tacked on to the activity for which they are given, but are the activity itself in consummation. So what is the consummation of the act of giving? Jesus doesn't tell us specifically what this reward is. When he says, there is great reward, my Father will reward you from heaven. But the reward of giving, when we give for the right reasons, I think is this, that our heart tastes both the joy and the magnitude of the Father's heart to give. In our act of giving, we taste the Father's joy and the great magnitude and extent of his giving heart. In verse 21, chapter 6, Jesus says, Invest in heaven, not on earth, because where your treasure or your investment is, there your heart will be also. Later on in verse 11 of chapter 7, Jesus is is saying, If you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? What is the business of heaven, according to Jesus? It is joyful and eternal giving. To have our hearts there, that is our reward. When we give money to meet a need, when we give our time to serve someone, when we use our gifts to help others, the reward is God's joyful giving goes from an idea or a concept to a heart reality, gets into our soul and our experience. But Jesus says this reward only comes when it's done in secret, without hypocrisy, when we take the mask off. Why is it that we wear masks in the first place? Isn't it because we so long to be noticed, to be significant, to be approved? It's not a bad thing. God created us. He made us that way. But we wear the mask because we're so afraid we won't be accepted, we won't be approved, we won't be noticed for who we are. So we pretend, we perform, we try to prove ourselves. And Jesus' main message in this section of the Sermon on the Mount is take the religious masks off. When the mask comes off in the gospel, rewarding spirituality will follow will flood in. What's interesting about this one of the big three, giving, praying, fasting, is that throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus praying a lot. We see His prayer life. We see the life of prayer that He lived for us. In the Gospels, we also see Jesus fasting. We see Him giving up 
food for 40 days. He passed the test for us where we fail. But did you ever wonder why there's no mention in the Gospels of Jesus giving to the poor? Why is that? I think it's because of this. Jesus, He didn't give some of His time or some of His resources or some of His money to the poor because He became poor. Matthew 8, foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. His entire life was a gift to the poor. And until we see ourselves as poor, until we see our own poverty, we won't be able to take the masks off. We read this earlier as our words of assurance and encouragement in 2 Corinthians, when the Apostle Paul is talking about the motives and the rewards for giving, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that by His poverty you might become rich. Matthew 5, verse 1, the opening lines of the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, The riches of the joy in heaven is for those who know and those who admit their complete spiritual poverty and give up on trying to earn the approval, the significance, the notice of others. Jesus became poor. He gave up everything. He lived as a poor man with nothing. He emptied himself completely. He gave his entire life for us so that we would know His love, so that we would know that His acceptance of us is not based on anything we do. It is a gift. We don't earn it through our good works. We don't lose it when we fail. And so, we can take off the masks. The response to Jesus, to Him giving everything for us, is not for us to give some of our money, some of our time, and some of our resources to Him. It is to give all of ourselves to Him. Then our acts of giving flow out of that act of surrender. All our other smaller acts of giving and praying and fasting flow. And we experience the reward, the joy of heaven. We're going to transition now to share in this meal together, the Lord's Supper. For Christians, this is a time for us, whenever we do this, to remember the central and most important act in our faith, the act that Jesus told us we must reenact to remember over and over again, is the act of giving. A God so loved the world that He gave. At the life that we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Because the most central and important act in all of history is the giving of God on our behalf. We can take the masks off. We come to receive at this meal He promises to give. He meets us with the joy of His gracious heart and His accepting love. And when this happens, when we remember the gift of what we have been given, then we are sent and we are free to give ourselves. 
So if you have placed your faith in Jesus, if you have been baptized and received, been received into His church, this meal is for you. This meal is a time for you to soak and to receive the gift all over again. If you are here and you are still exploring Christianity, you have some questions, you're not quite sure about some things, this is a great time for you to reflect on the central and most important act of the Christian faith, the act of Jesus giving Himself for you. And I would invite you. There are some prayers for you on page 7 to pray during this time to come to receive Jesus and His gift of life. Before we transition to our time to come to this meal, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we know that we are guilty of mask wearing, of performing and pretending. And I know for some of us, we are very weary of that. It's tiring to always be on stage. And I pray this, this meal, this time that we get to share, coming forward into your presence would be a time of great freedom where the masks would come off. And I pray, Lord, that for all of us, that we would come with a posture of expectant receiving, that as you promise to meet us here with your presence, and with the gift of your joy, the joy of heaven, that where we are burdened and struggling, where we are stumbling, we would bring all that to you, masks off, come forward and receive the grace, the forgiveness, the words we so desperately need to hear, that we are your beloved children in whom you are well pleased because of the life and the death and the resurrection of your Son. Meet us as we come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.